You are listening to the weekly podcast of Fellowship Paragold, a church committed to making the real Jesus known to every man, woman, and child. For more information about our church, please visit us at www.fellowshipparagold.com. Um, so it is a, a joy to be here with you today. And if you have your Bible, go ahead and grab it and turn with me to Mark chapter 1. Uh, we're going to start in verse 35, and um, we're going to back up and read some more in a moment for context. But we'll start Mark 1 verse 35. And uh, just as you're turning there, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, today we're finishing up our series that we have titled Discovering Your Identity and Calling. And in this series, we've been learning together that a key task in our discipleship to Jesus is discovering your true self, who you truly are in Christ, and then discovering what it means to be the man or the woman that he has created you to be. And so today we're going to wrap that series up. And uh, to do that, we're going to uh, start here in Mark chapter 1, and we will begin in verse 35. Let's read through verse 39. If you'll follow along with me, um, Mark says this in his gospel. Rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he, that is Jesus, departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. He said to them, Well, let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And so Jesus went. Throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, Let's pray together. Would you pray with me as I pray for you? Um, Father, we do just come now and ask that you would um, open our ears to hear your voice speaking to us from your word. Um, Not my voice, not the other voices in our heads, the things that to do lists and self-condemning voices and all these other things. I just pray that you would silence all of that so we can hear your voice speak to our hearts this morning. Open our eyes to see the glory of the beauty of Jesus and the love that you have for us in him. Um, Enliven our hearts to the fact that um, we were made to be with him, to be in relationship with him, and that our sin is what stands in the way of that. So I pray that you would awaken hearts that are are, are, uh, full of repentance and faith in Jesus, Um, And that you would come and do your work right now, Holy Spirit, to save and to satisfy and sanctify and really just do what only you can do. Um, We ask all these things for your uh, glory and for our joy, and we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, in 2008, uh, Carl Allen was just an average bank loan officer who had no girlfriend, no friends, no direction, no plan for the future, and pretty much was just overall unhappy with his life. But all of that began to change when he enrolled in a motivational self-help seminar whose foundational principle was, if you want to find true life, you must live your life by one simple rule. Every time an opportunity presents itself, no matter what it is, you must say yes. You have to say yes to everything. And so Carl does this and it revolutionizes his life. And of course, the Carl that I'm referring to is Jim Carrey's character in the 2008 romantic comedy, Yes Man. Um, in the story, Carl meets this self-help guru named Terrence and Terrence gets in Carl's face and says, listen, man, when you say no to opportunities, you're saying no to life. You're dead. You're not living. And if you want to find true life, you have to invite the power of yes into your life. And so Carl has this, this crazy conversion like experience and he starts saying yes to everything. 
Every opportunity, every request, every demand, every expectation. He says yes to it all. And of course, this opens him up to some new experiences. He learns how to fly a plane, uh, how to play guitar, how to speak Korean, how to drive a motorcycle. Uh, But it doesn't take him long to realize the devastating effects of saying yes to too many things. Uh, He ends up overworking and overspending. He overpromises and overcommits. He gets addicted to Red Bull. Um, He gets beat up and hospitalized. And to top it all off, he gets mistaken for being a terrorist. So in the end of the story, Carl learns this powerful lesson. It's a lesson that all of us have to learn uh, this morning in order to survive in this crazy world. The lesson that Carl ends up learning is that he is, in fact, not God. He is a human being. He has limitations, and he cannot do it all. And so he learns that in order to truly live and live well in an overbusy world, he has to have the wisdom and the discipline to say no. And the reason I share this story with you is because for us, this is not a movie. This is reality. Uh, don't do it now, but you can go home if you want, and um, you can just Google the words America and busy, and you can spend all day reading what sociologists are saying about our culture right now. Uh, more than ever before, any other gen- generation in human history, Americans are more anxious and stressed out because most of us are saying yes to too many things. And therefore, we are over busy, over committed pulled in a thousand directions. We feel like we're drowning. We feel like we're, you know, we're just, we're engulfed in all this stuff to do. Our schedules are crammed full with work and kids and kids playing multiple sports and doing all these activities. And there's so many shows to watch on Netflix and games to play on your phone and apps to explore. There's just so much to do, right? Like we have more choices and options now than ever before, which is why many are saying America is no longer the land of opportunity but we are the land of endless opportunities. Um, Peter Drucker is a business writer and a follower of Jesus, and here's what he says. He says, I'll put this on the screen for you. In a few hundred years, when the history of our time will be written from a long-term perspective, it's likely that the most important event historians will see is not technology, not the Internet, not e-commerce. It is an unprecedented change in the human condition. For the first time, literally, Substantial and rapidly growing numbers of people have choices. For the first time, they will have to manage themselves, and society is totally unprepared for it. He's right. So for the first time ever in human history, we have, we have more choices and options than ever before. And that's a good thing, by the way. But it, it means that we have to, in Drucker's language, learn how to self-manage. In other words, we have to mature. And we have to have the discipline and the wisdom to realize that we are just human beings. We are, in fact, not God. We have limitations, and we can't do it all. And therefore, a key task in our discipleship to Jesus, if we're going to survive and thrive in an over-busy world, in an obsessively busy culture, we're going to have to master the art of saying no. And I realize, like, for some of you, how that makes you feel. Like, I can't tell people no. I can't disappoint people. Or for some of you, you're feeling like the guilt and the shame. Take a deep breath for for a moment um, and realize that this is not unloving. This is not unbiblical. In fact, this is something that we see Jesus modeling for us in his own life. And the reality is, if you don't learn this task, if you don't learn how to say no, then what happens is we kind of get lost in the blizzard of busyness. 
And it, ha- it has this kind of whiteout effect, right? And you lose sight of the gospel. You lose sight of who you truly are in Christ. And you lose sight of what it is that he's calling you to do with your life. And so we have to master this art of saying no, which we see all over the life of Jesus. So, um, and since we're his disciples, if you are his disciple, then you're called to become like Jesus and do what Jesus did, uh, which means you've got to say no sometimes. So what I want to do just to help us understand what this looks like is I want to start by just examining. Let's just take some time to examine the life of Jesus. Okay, let's start there. So we're going to read just a little bit. I want you to look back with me at Mark chapter 1. And uh, we're going to back up for the sake of context. So we'll start in uh, chapter 1, verse 9. Here's what Mark says. He says, In those days Jesus came up from Nazareth of Galilee, and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Okay, let's stop for a moment. This is the first story we ever read in Jesus' adult life, okay? This is kind of the first big boy story we read about him. And we talked about this a few weeks ago. What you have to understand about this story is that this is a watershed moment for Jesus in his life where he gets this clear vision of his identity and his calling from God. So he receives his identity from the Father. You're my beloved son. And he receives his calling as the Son of God, which was a name that was reserved for the Messiah in the Old Testament. So this is Jesus getting a crystal clear picture of his identity and his calling. He is the Son and the promised Savior who's come to bring the, you know, the reason he has come is to bring the kingdom of God to earth. From here, in Mark chapter 1, we see Jesus going out into the world and living into this identity and this calling. And if you look in Mark 1, verses 14 through 34, this covers his first day on the job as the Messiah, okay? So look at, uh, skip down to verse 14, Jesus' first day on the job. Mark says, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So Jesus goes out, he's preaching the good news that the kingdom of God is here, and immediately he starts getting all these followers. I mean, think about this, guys. People have been waiting to hear this message for centuries, and so you can imagine the kind of attention this starts to create for Jesus. He's got all these people now following him and wanting to hear him. Skip down to verse 27. Jesus isn't just declaring the kingdom of God, but he's demonstrating it. He's going around, he's healing the sick, and he's casting out demons. And so we read Mark say this in verse 27 of chapter 1. They were all amazed. And so they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Catch this. At once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. So you start to get this picture that Jesus is becoming more and more popular and wanted with the masses. He's all of a sudden getting thousands and thousands of friend requests on Facebook, thousands of followers on Twitter, right? Like everybody's wanting a piece of Jesus. Everybody wants to hear from him. Everybody wants him to do things for them. Everybody wants to see him. And so so much so that look at what happens in verse 32 of chapter 1. Mark says, that evening at sundown, They brought to him who? All, right? All who were sick or oppressed by demons. And who was gathered together? The whole city, right? 
The whole city was gathered together at the door, and Jesus healed many who were sick with various diseases, and he cast out many demons. This is Jesus' first day on the job. Um, he's living out his identity and his calling. It's this long marathon day of Jesus preaching and teaching and healing and casting out demons. He's got all this people now at his doorsteps of this house where he's staying, and he's exhausted, right? Like, as you can imagine, everybody knows what it's like to work a long, hard day. At the end of a long, hard day, Jesus is tired, and so he decides to get some sleep. And now we pick up at, at our passage that we looked at um, a moment ago. The next morning, Jesus wakes up. It's day two on the job, and here's what we see in verse 35. Rising very early in the morning, while it's still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you, Jesus. I love this. Um, instead of sleeping in after a long, hard day, Jesus wakes up early. He goes out for some silence and solitude to be alone with his father, and just like my kids do most morning, the disciples come and interrupt him. And, uh, and they say, hey, great news, Jesus. Everybody's looking for you. Like, dude, you've gone viral, man. It's all, it's all over YouTube, right? You slaying these demons. Like, you can just imagine the crowds with all their iPhones, right? Like, videoing this as he's like, bam, casting out demons and like healing the sick. And they're like, dude, you've, you're an overnight success. You've gone viral. You're trending on Twitter. Hashtag son of God. Like... I mean, like, you know, Fallon wants you for the t- t- tonight show. Like, dude, this is, like, you've got, you've got to stop what you're doing now. Like, drop your journal, Jesus. I know you're trying to be with the Father. But you've got to come back into town and see this. And you start to feel, can you not feel, like, stay-at-home moms kind of really can probably feel this more than any of us, these kind of demands. But you can start to feel this intense emotional pressure on Jesus to respond to these requests and these expectations. But then we read this. Jesus replies in verse 38. Watch what happens. He says, let's go somewhere else to the next towns that I may preach there also. For that is why I came. If you didn't catch it, let me translate this for you. This is Jesus for no. This is how you say no in Jesus' language, okay? Kind of a diplomatic way, but, it's, but this is how you say no if you're Jesus. Hey, Jesus, come. Everybody's after you. We need you back in town. No. What? Like, no, I need to go to the next town. The next town, like, you've got, like, this is a great opportunity. You need to capitalize on all this success. If they really want to get spiritual with them, they might try to use, they might try to Jesus juke Jesus and use this kind of language of, this is an open door from the Spirit, right? Like, this is clearly an open door from God. Like, you've got to capitalize on this. Jesus says, no, no, I'm not going to do that because that's not why I came. So you see this pattern all throughout Jesus' life. It's just the second day on the job, and you already see it. It's this pattern of, will you? No. Will you? No. Will you? No. That's not why I came. And you know, we often talk about all the good stuff Jesus did. We, we, we rarely ever talk about all the great things Jesus did not do. All over the Gospels, we see Jesus saying no. And not to bad stuff, but to really great opportunities. Like Jesus... Uh, will you come and teach these people about the kingdom of God? No. Uh, Jesus, will you heal these sick people? No. Jesus, will you cast out these demons? No. 
Did you notice, by the way, back in verse 33, that it says they brought all in the city who were sick and oppressed by demons? And then it says in verse 34, Jesus healed many who were sick. He didn't heal all of them. And then it says he cast out many demons. He didn't cast out all of them. Jesus did some really amazing stuff. There's also a lot of amazing stuff he did not do. And in his earthly ministry, confined by, you know, God in the flesh, confined by these human limitations that he put himself in, it means that Jesus did not heal every sick person in Palestine, much less every sick person in the world. Um, He did not raise every dead person. He did not feed every hungry beggar. He did not meet every good expectation or bad expectation, like, Jesus, will you be a great military leader and liberate us from Roman oppression? Sounds reasonable enough. Jesus said, nope. That's not why I came. Jesus, will you mediate between me and my brother on who gets to sit next to you in your kingdom? Nope, I'm not playing that game. I'm not getting sucked into that black hole. I'm not doing that. Nope. He even said no to his own mom. Be careful when you do that. Um, Jesus, why are you trying to lead all these people? You need to do something different with your life. And Jesus said, I love you, mom. But no, that's not why I came. Jesus knew that in order for him to fulfill his God-given identity and calling, he had to be able to say no. And often he had to be able to say no to really good opportunities. And here's the thing. He felt really good about doing that. He didn't feel guilty about doing that. He wasn't being unloving when he was doing that. He was really confident in that. So confident that if you fast forward to the end of Jesus' life, just hours away from his death, Jesus is praying in John 17... You don't have to turn there. Just listen. And Jesus says this with great confidence to his father. He says, I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. I'm going to read that again. Just listen to it, okay? We're going to learn this the old-fashioned way just by listening to it, all right? I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. How many of us are going to be able to say that with that kind of clarity and that kind of confidence when we come to the end of our lives? I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't try to say yes to it all, but through grace and faith, I did exactly the work that the Father gave me to do. The point that I want you to see is, is, is this. Jesus had so much clarity and so much confidence around his identity. This is who I am. And around his calling, this is what I was born to do. That with insane laser focus and intentionality and conviction, Jesus said yes to that identity and calling. And he said no to everything else that would busy him and distract him and pull him away from that. His priorities were clear, guys. Jesus wasn't driven by the need to achieve or perform. He wasn't driven by other people's approval or expectations. He knew exactly who he was and exactly what he was called to do. And therefore, he had the maturity and the wisdom and the discipline to say yes to that and no to everything that was not that. And that's why when he gets to the end of his life, he says with all this confidence and joy, I have done, I have glorified you, Father, in accomplishing exactly the work that you've given me to do. How beautiful and compelling is that? Listen, that's the definition of a life well lived. When you get to the end of your life and you can say on your deathbed, listen, I didn't live a perfect life. God doesn't demand you to be perfect. That's why you need Jesus. But through grace and through faith, I didn't try to do it all. I didn't say yes to it all. But with great clarity and conviction, I accomplished the work. I fulfilled the identity and the calling that the Father gave me to do. I don't know about you, but I long to be able to say that at the end of my life. 
The problem is, most of us don't live that way now. Am I right? I'm right. Okay. Um, <clears throat> I'm right. Uh, most of us are over busy. How are you? How do we respond? How do we respond? No, 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 no. We don't say fine. I want you to start paying attention to this. How are you? Busy. No, you don't say good. You all say busy. Trust me. Because I say it too, right? I'm going to try it again. We're going to try it again. I want you to respond by saying busy, okay? Because I want to feel like I got this right. All right? When I say how are you, you say busy. Are you with me? How are you? Busy. Busy. There we go. I want you to start listening for it, guys, because we all do it. I do it. How are you? How are you been, Adam? Oh, busy. (laughs) Busy. Busy. And in our culture, busy has become kind of this moniker or this badge for, you know, I'm important, I'm popular, I've got a lot going on, I just don't want to hang out with you, and so I'm making excuses, um, you know, or, or I'm really insecure, like however you want to interpret I'm busy. The point is, the thing we want everybody to know about us is that we're busy. Or in the words of Kevin DeYoung, we are crazy busy. Um, a great little book that you ought, to, you ought to read is Kevin DeYoung writes a book called Crazy Busy. And in this book, DeYoung talks about what all sociologists and cultural experts are saying about us right now, which is not only that we are busier than every other human civilization that's ever lived, but we are busier with a different kind of busyness than ever before. Um, because like we're not busy churning our own butter or chopping down trees for firewood. Like Our busyness is that we live in the digital age. And so we have, we have more choices and more access than ever before. With, with iPhones and Wi-Fi technology, we have access to right, non-stop information, all this online shopping, um, non-stop entertainment. For the first time ever, we literally we have the world at our fingertips. And not only do we have all this access to the world, but the world has all this access to us. People can reach you anytime, anywhere, any place they want. And by the way, they expect you to respond. So through texting, through emails, through notifications, you're constantly being bombarded with these interruptions, right? And you feel this intense emotional pressure to respond to it all and say yes to it all. And we are more easily marketed and targeted for marketing now than ever before. That's why it's, it's the e-commerce and online shopping world is just it's tremendously like huge. It's easier now to spend money. It's easier to shop. It's easier to sign up for multiple things. That's why our kids are doing so many different things. It's just easy to sign them up. Like, it's just easy. Used to, you have to, like, get out of bed and go down to the field and, like, sign them up. It's just easy now. Everything's easy, right? Which is good on the one hand. can also be devastating if you don't have the wisdom and the maturity and the discipline to know how to say no, right? Rewind a century which is just a blip on the human radar, and you had no phone, you had no Wi-Fi, you had no social media, no TV, your kids weren't playing three sports and taking piano and karate lessons, like, there's, no, there's none of that stuff. You'd work most of the day, and then at the end of the day, when the sun went down, you'd come into the house, you'd have dinner with your family. And then after dinner, you would read, or read, because that's pretty much like the only option you had, that's all you could do. Um, and then after, you know, when the kids would go to bed, after you would finish reading or whatever, like you would go to bed, you'd go to sleep, or you would do other things. People, people wonder why that generation had so many kids. Um, there just wasn't a lot to do, okay? Uh, and so you didn't fall asleep watching Netflix. Um, even if you weren't a Christian, you would Sabbath on Sunday because the whole nation would shut down. And you just lived a simpler life. 
Rewind just a couple decades ago, like not even that far back, back into the 90s, you had this thing uh, called an office. Like it's a place where you would go to work. It's like a, it was a building, and you had to actually go and be there in that physical space at a certain time. You had to clock in, you had to clock out. And nowadays, we carry the office around in our back pockets, right? And you don't have to go anywhere. You just roll over in the morning and unlock your phone, and there's a text, there's an email, there's work for you to do. Or there's somebody needing you to respond to them, somebody trying to get a hold of you. Or there's stuff called Facebook and Instagram and Twitter that's trying to distract you. I remember when I was a kid, um, my dad would come home from work, and we would get out in the front yard, we would play catch, or we'd throw the football around, we'd throw a baseball or whatever. And if somebody wanted to get a hold of him, if somebody needed him and wanted to get a hold of him, they'd have to call the landline. At which point my mom would say, I'm sorry, he's busy. He's outside playing catch with his son right now right? And I'm sure his mind was on a thousand different things, just like every other mom and dad's is. I'm sure he was thinking about bills and work and responsibilities and all this stuff. But in that moment, he didn't have this tyrant in his pocket that was screaming at him. He was just able to focus on being with his son, right? I'm not saying that the iPhone is evil. We're the the ones that have the problem. We abuse this stuff, right? I'm not saying that things were better back in the day. Like, I don't want to churn my own butter. I don't want to chop down my own tree, okay? I don't want to commute to work on a horse. I don't want to do this kind of stuff. I appreciate, listen, I, I, I promise you, I appreciate the ability to go on Amazon Prime and, like, buy something, and two days later, it's at my house. I love it. I appreciate, you know, the advantages of having an iPhone. My point, again, is just this. Listen, this is my my point. Don't walk out here and think technology's bad. We need to get back to the old days when things were good. Like, no, people were broken and jacked up and needed Jesus back then too. My point is this. More than ever before, it is all too easy to get sucked into the vortex of busyness and distraction and to lose sight of the gospel and lose sight of who you are in Christ in the manner of the woman that God has created you to be, and to actually miss out on the life that's right in front of you, that Jesus has for you. And our concern as pastors is that we don't realize the violence that this kind of busyness is doing to our souls. So to actually quote Kevin DeYoung from his book, Crazy Busy, DeYoung says this, busyness, I'll put this on the screen, busyness does not mean that you are a faithful or fruitful Christian. It only means that you're busy, just like everyone else. And like everyone else, your joy, your heart, and your soul are in danger. And he goes on to say, there are three dangers that come with our busyness. Busyness robs our joy, ruins our hearts, and rots our souls. And maybe some of you are thinking like, geez, that's a little bit of an overstatement. Um, All you got to do, guys, again, is Google this, and you can read what all sociologists, even those who don't follow Jesus, are saying about us right now, which is that this kind of busyness is hijacking your brain robbing you of life, and doing violence to your soul. It's for this reason Dallas Willard said, um, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. For hurry is the great enemy of the spiritual life in our world today. Um, When Willard talks about hurry, by the way, he's talking about busyness. Do you find that interesting? Willard says busyness is the great enemy of the spiritual life. Not, Not greed, not pride, not sexual immorality. He says, if you want to be spiritually healthy and mature, you have to ruthlessly eliminate busyness from your life. And, and, and I think, by the way, everybody in here right now, let's focus for a second. Everybody in here right now knows Willard is right. We know all this stuff is right because your body's telling you right now. 
Like you, 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 the way you're designed, your body's trying to tell you that something about this way of life is not working. It's not okay. And so emotionally, we carry around this low-grade anxiety, and we're stressed out, and that manifests itself in these physical symptoms, right? Like tension in your back, pain in your neck, knots in your stomach, um, rapid heart rate and chest pain and these kinds of things, right? It affects us emotionally. It affects us relationally. We're quick-tempered. We're angry. We're snappy with one another. We're not fully present with anybody, right? Like we're sitting at the table with our kids or we're at family meal in our missional communities and we're on our phones because we're restlessly checking in to see who's texts, who's texted me or who's trying to get a hold of me or how many, how many likes have I had on this post on Instagram or like we're not present with people. So it affects us emotionally. It affects us relationally. But spiritually, Willard is trying to get us to see the byproduct is even worse. There's a reason why it's been said, if the devil can't make you sin, he'll make you busy. If the devil can't make you sin, he'll make you busy. Because like sin, busyness has the power to functionally cut you off from the presence of God. Busyness disconnects you from God. And here's why. You want to know why busyness disconnects you from God? Because God is not busy. Or put another way, God is not in a hurry. God is always perfectly accomplishing everything he set out to do. And he's not stressed out. He's not anxious. He's not sidetracked. He's not distracted by all these other things. God is not busy. He's not in a hurry. And the thing is, you were created to trust him and walk with him at his pace. Um, today is my oldest daughter's sixth birthday. And so we asked her, you know, Lucy, what do you want to do for your birthday? And all she said, like for weeks now, she's just said, like, all I want to do is go to Bass Pro Shop in Memphis. <laughs> so since moving home, she's become like a little country girl. And so um, I love it. So we took Lucy Blue and the whole family yesterday to Bass Pro Shop. And, and here's the game I played all day yesterday in Bass Pro Shop, okay? The game I played all day was just trying to keep my kids alive and together and with me. And not allow them to get swallowed up in the chaos and busyness of that place. And if you've ever been in there, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And the Easter Bunny was in there yesterday, which we didn't know. And that made it a million times worse, by the way. It's like worse than Santa. I can't, it's like unbelievable. So at any given point in time, I had Nugs, my middle child, 30 feet in front of me. I had Peach, my youngest child, 30 feet behind me, dragging up the rear. And I never knew where Lucy was. Like half the time, I didn't know where she was. And so I was just trying to anxiously manage and keep all these people like together, walking with their father at my pace, right? This is exactly what Paul is getting at in Galatians 5.25 when he says, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Or put another way, let us walk at the same pace with the Spirit. Listen, outside of like blatant, hidden, unrepentant sin in your life, the thing right now that is most robbing us of life and joy is that most of us are trying to run at our own pace. And we are either lagging behind the Spirit in apathy and time wasters like Netflix and TV and all this kind of stuff, or we are rushing out ahead of the Spirit at this breakneck go, 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 go pace. And I'm telling you, I have learned the hard way that you cannot live in a hurry and walk in the Spirit. I'm going to say that again because that's, I'm not, don't, that's tweet worthy. Okay, listen, tweet, you should tweet that. Um, 
you cannot live in a hurry and walk in the Spirit. You've heard me tell this story about myself, but I'm, I'm telling you, I learned this the hard way. Working 65, 75 hours a week in school, always on my phone. I had two panic attacks two years ago. I thought they were literal heart attacks. My wife looked at me and said, no, something's going to change. Something has to change in you. We're not going to do this anymore. Something's got to change in us. If we're going to follow Jesus and truly live well in this day and age, something's got to change. Um, we have to learn to slow down the pace of our lives not to a lethargic, apathetic pace, but just to a life of walking with Jesus. And listen, if you go back to the garden, by the way, let me just, let me just share this with you. If you go back to the garden of Genesis, in Genesis, you were actually made to walk with God in the cool of the day. That's what you were made for. You were made to let him set the pace of your life. In fact, I would argue the essence of sin is us trying to run at our own pace. It's us looking at God and saying, like, I don't want your limitations, like, I know you told me not to eat from that tree, and that's a boundary and a limitation you drew for me, but I don't want that limitation. I want to live without limitations. I want to be able to do it all, see it all, be it all, experience it all on my terms. I want to run at my own pace. That's the essence of sin. And Jesus looks at us, man, and with, with, with crystal clarity, he says, what good is it if you gain the whole world, if you do it all, see it all, experience it all, say yes to it all, and you forfeit your own soul. Like, that's Jesus being as clear as he can to say, you, you simply can't say yes to it all and not lose your soul. Because you're a human being. And you have limitations. So, here's where that leaves us. In order for us to become the men and women God's created us to be, and experience the life that we were created for, there are two things from Jesus we must learn. And practice, okay? So we're going to practice this this week. Two things from Jesus we must learn and we must practice. Step one, if you're taking notes, step one is that before we can know what to say no to, we have to learn what to say yes to. Which means that you have to learn from Jesus what is your true identity and calling. What is your identity? Like on a generic level, you are a son or a daughter of God in Christ. Like you have to get that. And then on a specific level, who has God made you and you only to be? What is your calling? What is it that God has shaped you to do? What's your vocation? What's he wired you for? What's your purpose? That's been the point of this whole series, guys. I would, I would strongly encourage you to go back and listen or re-listen to these podcasts because we, we truly believe God wants to use this series to shape the life of our church and to change the trajectory of your life. So go back and listen to this. There's lots of resources and things that can equip you to practice discovering your identity and calling. And obviously this is a journey um, and, it's, and it's, it's a quick trip and not a journey. So we don't have to be in a hurry, right? That's what this is all about. We just have to be willing to go and to trust Jesus and follow him, and he will show us the way. Some of you, are, we're all at different stages on this journey. Some of you are in high school, in college, or you're a young adult, and you're like at the very beginning of trying to figure out, like, who am I? What is it? What's my purpose in life? What's God called me to do? That's a beautiful, necessary part of the journey. Like, you're right where God wants you to be. That's great. Some of you have been practicing this for a year or so or for a few months. You've got some kind of clarity around who you are specifically and what God's called you to. Others of you have been at this for decades. You know exactly you know, your identity and your vocation. The point is, wherever you are on this journey, we have to pray and practice discerning what is it that God's inviting us to say yes to in our identity and calling because you can't say yes to it all. And then second, once you learn what to say yes to, 
you have to learn how to say no. And not just the bad things, but like Jesus, we have to learn how to say no to really good things and really good opportunities. And so here's what I want to do um, to close. As we close, I just want to walk through some practical ways to learn how to say no. Um, And this is not necessarily all like coming from the scriptures. This is just common wisdom, common sense that I think like God would agree with. So um, so if if you're learning how to say no, here's a few things you got to do. Number one, tip number one, you need a life plan. You really need a life plan. And this is, this is going to be, if you look on your fellowship app, we're going to talk about this in our missional communities. This is one of your practices for the week. But a life plan is really just a basic map for how to live well and how to plan your life around your God-given identity and calling. Um, it, it'll have you list your top priorities in life. Like you're going to have to answer the question, before God, what am I responsible for? Like before God, what are, the, what are the basic priorities I'm responsible for? I'm responsible for my relationship with God, like pursuing him. I'm responsible for taking care of myself, my family, you know, my wife and kids, my career. Like what is it that you're responsible for? Uh, living on mission, like those kinds of things. And then um, you're going to look at those areas and kind of assess where am I at in this area? Where do I want to be in this area? What's my preferred future? And then how am I going to get there? It's also going to have you answer the question like, what are people going to say about me when I'm dead? So have fun with that. Um, And so, but the point is, guys, listen, if we're going to learn how to say no, we need to have a life plan. We need need to have some sort of plan. It's just a way of being intentional. Nobody nobody drifts into or stumbles into um, maturity in Jesus. Nobody stumbles into our identity and calling. Uh, Nobody stumbles into godliness. Like we need some sort of plan. We We need a scheduled life. A schedule is just a map for how to live well, okay? And so, um, in other words, you need a life plan. Number two, if you're going to learn how to say no, you can't get sucked into the tyranny of the urgent. Um, this is the other part of our practice for the week, but it's this basic idea that there's a difference between what is urgent and what is important. Um, D- Dwight D. Eisenhower said, what is important is seldom urgent, and what is urgent is seldom important, that makes sense? So there's a difference between those two, urgent and important. And you have things in your life that are urgent, which are things that put you in reactive mode. Like these are things that are, that are like storming in your life and demanding your attention right now. And then you have things that are important, which are things that fit with your life plan and your long-term goals and your identity and your calling. And so for our practice, we're going to use this Eisenhower decision matrix. I'll put it on the screen for you. And you basically have these four quadrants, Okay. You have these four quadrants. Quadrant one are things that are both urgent and important. So these are things that require your immediate attention and they're important things. You should probably say yes to quadrant one. These are things like emergencies, problems, deadlines. You get a sick child. You got a work deadline. You got a prompting of the spirit, things like that. You should say yes to. Quadrant two are things that are not urgent, but they are things that are extremely important in order for you to become the man or woman God has made you to be. These are things like investing in relationships, planning and being intentional with your life and your spiritual formation, and taking responsibility for your growth and self-development. So this is things like practicing the spiritual disciplines in the way of Jesus, living in community and on mission, family time, dating your spouse. Listen, quadrant two is where you need to spend most of your time. Unfortunately, these are things we, we usually neglect because of quadrant three and four. Quadrant three are things that demand our immediate attention, so they're urgent, but they don't actually help us become the person God made us to be, so they're not important. You can't escape all of these, so don't shame yourself, but these are interruptions. These are texts, phone calls, most emails, things like that. 
And then finally, you have quadrant four, which are things that are not urgent and not important. These are time wasters, TV, social media, games. If you did the habit or the time audit that, that Jared had us do a few weeks ago, you probably discovered, like I did, that I spend, we spend an inordinate amount of time in quadrant four. And I read this week that um, altogether, the average person in the United States spends 13 hours a week in online activity. We watch 35 hours of television a week. And we touch our phones an average of 2,617 times a day. So, like, can we all just agree, without shaming ourselves, just all the grace in the world, can we all just agree, like, quadrant four is probably an area where we need to say no, like, a little more often? Um, I read that a healthy goal, by the way, is to spend less than 5% of your waking hours in quadrant four, which comes out to be roughly 42 minutes a day. It's just enough time to watch two episodes of The Office, read a psalm, and go to bed. Um, And so 42 minutes a day in quadrant four, and you're like extremely healthy American, okay? Um, But in all seriousness, let me just say, like as pastors, we, we are realizing that quadrant four is our greatest challenge to our discipleship in this cultural moment. Like this is the greatest challenge to our discipleship. Um, I'm probably overquoting, but I got to share this one from Andrew Sullivan. Um, he, he wrote this essay that I read like a couple of years ago in the New York Times uh, magazine, and it's titled, I Used to Be a Human Being. And it's about his journey of trying to live without his iPhone. And here's what Andrew Sullivan says. Put it on the screen. He says, this new epidemic of distraction, he's talking about quadrant four things. This new epidemic of distraction is our civilization's specific weakness. And its threat is not so much to our minds, even as they shapeshift under the pressure. The threat is to our souls. At this rate, if the noise does not relent, we might even forget that we have a soul. Listen to this. If churches came to understand that the greatest threat to our faith today is not hedonism, but distraction perhaps they might begin to appeal to a new, to a frazzled digital generation. The greatest threat to our, to our spirituality is not hedonism, but distraction. Number, th- number two, don't get sucked into the tyranny of the urgent. Okay, number three, and we're, we're winding down here. Um, we have to care more about God's approval than man's approval. There is so much pressure to say yes to everybody's demands and requests um, and, and I get it, like, we, we, we are to say yes. Like, we're, we're called to be generous with our time. We're called to love and serve one another. So don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. The point is, you can't say yes to everybody. And I know, like, if you're a two on the Enneagram, this is really hard for you to hear, but you will disappoint somebody. Who's that going to be? Because you cannot say yes to everybody. And listen to me very carefully. There's a big difference between loving and serving someone and pleasing someone. And you can't meet everyone's expectations. Jesus certainly did not. So you have to care more about his approval than you do everyone else's approval. Number four, if you're going to learn how to say no, you need to realize every time you say yes to something, you're saying no to something else. That's basic math, guys. Um, We think, I'll just fit it in, right? I'll just make it work. Like, I'll take that on. I'll, I'll make it work. Listen, there's 24 hours in a day, eight of which you need to sleep. There are seven days in a week, one of which is the Sabbath. That's all you have, and life is short. And you, you just you cannot do it all. And every time you say yes to one thing, you're saying no to something else. So the question I want you to ask yourself this morning is, what am I saying no to because I'm saying yes? What, am I, what are you saying no to because you're saying yes to something else? Are you saying no to time with God? 
Are you saying no to time with your wife and kids? Are you saying no to being in the missional community? I just don't have time for that right now. Like, I, I know we're called to make disciples and live in community and be a family of missionary service, but I just, man, I just don't have the time for that right now because I'm saying yes to all these other things. What are you saying no to that you're not saying yes to? And let's make sure that's not to Jesus and to the life he's calling us to. Number five, if you're going to learn how to say no, resist the temptation to overcorrect. That's our problem, man. Like, we love to overcorrect, and so we'll swing from, like, saying yes all the time to saying only no all the time. And you don't want to become the opposite of Carl Allen and become, like, no man. Um, You want to be open and sensitive to what the Holy Spirit is inviting you to do. Here's a rule of thumb. Anytime somebody asks you to do something, why don't you just pray and sit on it for 24 hours before you say yes? Okay, but you can't say no to everything, right? Nope, that's not my identity and calling. Like, that would be a cop-out. So don't overcorrect. That's number five. And then finally, here's the last one. If you're going to learn how to say no, you have to remember this simple rule that good is the enemy of best. Um, Our lives are filled with so many good things, like so many gifts from God, so many good things. But our tendency is to settle for what is good and miss out on what is best. And to paraphrase C.S. Lewis, we are far too easily pleased and too easily satisfied with things that can never satisfy. And most of us are busy looking for life and things that actually suck the life out of you. And we're missing the life that's right in front of us, and we're missing the life that ultimately Jesus has for us. Look, Jesus comes on the scene, and he announces to us all, I am the life. Like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You want to find real life? It's not found in, like, inviting the power of yes into your life. It's actually inviting, it's actually comes in saying no to everything else and yes to me. Like, Jesus calls us to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. Which is Jesus' way of saying, embrace your limitations, trust me, say no to everything else, and say yes to me, ultimately. Listen, guys, don't, please don't walk out of here and miss what is best, which is Jesus. Like, don't settle for what is good and miss what is best. Jesus is better than anything else this world has to offer. And only he can save and satisfy the deepest longings of your soul. That's what we celebrate every week when we come to this table. What we celebrate every week is that beneath our busyness is not a schedule problem. Listen to me very carefully. You can't just fix your schedule and find freedom. Beneath our business is not a schedule problem. It's a sin problem. It's this problem that we want to live, I want to live without limitations. I want to trust in my own abilities. I want, to do, I want to run at my own pace apart from God. And that actually is called sin, and that separates us from God. We have all ran from him at our own pace. The good news of the gospel is that he has not left us there, but he has ran after us. He has pursued us, and he has loved us so much that he has given his life for ours so that we can have life in him.